Hi there, folks. Welcome to the special episode of F1 Explained on the Inside Line F1 podcast. Now, you might be wondering, normally it's Mithila who starts off these episodes, but unfortunately, she's not going to be a part of this one. But don't you worry. I've got a lot of fun stories that I want to share with you. And trust me, we've got the perfect guest to do just that. Now, in the world of Formula 1, one might expect it to be pretty, pretty dull at this particular stage of the year. But just like the airfields in the UK, the skies are eventually turning out to be pretty busy. And speaking <laughs> of the airfield, speaking of Formula 1, here's the perfect guest to bring along for this episode of F1 Explained. Folks, please welcome Steve Slater, the voice of Formula 1 in Asia. And at this stage as well, kind of one of the voices of the Inside Learn F1 podcast as well, considering how often we've had him on. But sir, firstly, welcome along. And I want to ask you one major question. Silly season. I mean, what sort of a silly name is Silly Season? How did it even come about? <laughs> it's that time where decisions defy logic sometimes. I mean, you, you can't get much sillier than um, you know, a four-times world champion announcing his retirement just at the start of the summer break, unlocking the driver market while everybody's away on holiday. You can imagine the running around behind the scenes, can't you? Um, you know, we've had some real silly ones in the past. Uh, Williams used to have a reputation for taking a driver to the World Championship and then releasing them, uh, you know, in, with, uh, with Damon Hill and Nigel Mansell. Um, we've seen some bizarre decisions in the past, and we've seen some bizarre decisions which have worked out. I mean, who would have thought bringing a 16-year-old Max Verstappen, whose dad had to drive him to the circuit because he hadn't got a driver's license, uh, who would have thought about bringing him into Formula One? <laughs> he's done rather well since, though, hasn't he? He has, yeah. And, and the team he's kind of working for these days has had a crazy amount of stories to talk about in the silly season itself. I mean, I remember, sir, there was a time back in 2017 where Toro Rosso had six drivers in their team for one year. And it's not MotoGP where you constantly have wildcard drivers coming in or not, but it's just crazy how many things happen at this time of the year. Well, it is. Toro Rosso, of course, had a special reason for doing that. They were effectively the Red Bull junior team. And uh, Helmut Marco uh, had a task of bringing through new driver talent, funding driver talent through the junior formulas for Formula 3, Formula 2 and GP2 as it used to be and getting them seats in F1 cars. And uh, bluntly, he worked on the light bulb principle. If you screwed the light bulb in and it didn't go on, you threw it away and put a new one in. Um, it was a tough, a very tough proving ground for a lot of drivers. But we have seen some really good Red Bull racing drivers come through that system and have uh, come to the fore. People like Mark Webber, who really didn't have the money to, uh, uh, you know, to go and start finding big sponsorship and big seats. And it's quite interesting now, in the midst of the latest driver silly season, guess who's there behind the scenes as one of the driver's managers? One Mark Webber. Exactly that. And, and I'd love to know your take on that in a second. But first, I've got to ask you about the timing of it. Just how does it always end up happening at the Belgian GP? Now, we know for a fact that the storm can brew around quite a fair bit on Spa-Francorchamps, but it's just as intense on the track as it is offered at this time of the year. It is. Uh, this, of course, will be the first Grand Prix after the month-long season break where the, it's compulsory for the teams to allow their staff and particularly their engineering and research staff to stand down. And uh, it, it, that is a reflection now of the extended Formula One season, which almost goes from sort of February to November. Um, so it, it's, it's a way of allowing the teams to regroup. While all that is going on, the commercial guys are working behind the scenes. You know, they're, they're trying to put the money together for next year. And you're talking a, a, an organisation now which maybe has to raise 50 to 100 million dollars 
in order to be able to be out on the starting grid for the next year. That's a big budget. And even with budget caps and everything else, you don't get those decisions made overnight. You know, they'll have been working on them for a year, but this is the time where those decisions start to come through. And that reflects on the driver market. And in the case of drivers, just how early do you think the talks actually begin? Is it just starting around at this stage or are things actually almost done at this stage most years? Um, a lot of teams, of course, have already confirmed their driver lineups and consistency is key these days. Uh, it's a real challenge to any F1 team when you change a driver over. The systems within the car, the engineering within the car, the research that goes into that engineering is incredibly complicated. And these days, the driver, as well as being a talented driver, also has to be a systems manager. They have to be able to handle, with big mental dexterity, actually, a lot of stuff going on in the car. You listen to the instructions going backwards and forwards to Max Verstappen to turn this up, turn this down, uh, adjust this, tweak that all being done in the car manually or semi-manually. And that's a requirement of the rules, of course. The guys on the pit line can't make those changes. And that is very important. Yeah, interesting stuff you mentioned over there about consistency being key and how McLaren actually want to change that. And I want to get your opinion on that, but I'll do so after a short break. So stay right here, folks, on the Inside Line of One podcast. There's a lot of fun stuff to talk about, the present fiasco and what could happen with Daniel Ricciardo and also some crazy F1 contract situations over the years. So be right back. Hey, folks, welcome back into the Inside Line F1 podcast. We were chatting with the voice of F1, Steve Slater, about the driver silly season. And on the matter of consistency, Alpine have just gone out there and have shaken the entire ground. They've ended up losing not just their number one driver, now, officially, they might not be having a number one, number two status, but we all know who's the number one in Alpine right now. But they've lost him. They've lost Fernando Alonso, and they've ended up losing one of the most promising talents in Formula One in a matter of 48 hours. So, firstly, how do you look at this entire situation, and just where do we go from here? How does Formula One progress from this situation? Well, let's go back to the very beginning, of course. This was opened up by Sebastian Vettel announcing his retirement from Formula One. And we've almost forgotten Sebastian. You know, he's a four times world champion, for heaven's sake. He, you know, he should be remembered and noted. So he'll be stepping down from Aston Martin. Alonso very quickly said that he was going to move from Alpine uh, to Aston Martin. He obviously sees a, a bigger chance or a bigger payroll. You know, you decide which of it, which is going to be, um, and uh, which is quite surprising because he fitted in well with Alpine. He has a good history. It, it, it is the old Benetton team, actually, in all but name. So Alonso moved on to Aston Martin. Alpine then announced that Oscar Piastri was going to join them. You know, the Formula Three champion two years ago, Formula Two champion last year. He's been a part of the Renault Driver Academy. Uh, with Joe Guanyu, in fact, and uh, they, you know, everybody expected that he would seamlessly move across because he's tested for Renault. He knows how the systems work and everything else. Um, but then, and he's actually managed by Mark Webber, who of course has a has a history with uh, the Enstone based team in in his own right. So um, Mark uh, had obviously found there was another alternative, which was McLaren. McLaren and Daniel Ricciardo, I don't say that the team haven't got on with Daniel Ricciardo, but Ricciardo hasn't got on with that way that car handles. It doesn't suit his driving style at all. And it appears that McLaren have made the decision to stand down one Aussie and bring another one in, and that uh, it would be in the shape of Oscar Piastri. Of course, whether the whole deal survives the contact with the lawyers is another story, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Piastri's management team have come to 
some form of agreement. Uh, Alpine, of course, are very upset about this, and it does leave a vacancy next to Esteban Ocon, and it's going to be interesting to see who moves up there next. If I might just remind you, there was a guy at the Enstone-based team a few years ago who came in under slightly controversial circumstances as well because he was poached from Jordan. His name was Michael Schumacher. I wonder where Mick's going. Which is one of the questions I wanted to ask you because at this point in time, perhaps staying with the Ferrari Driver Academy might not be the wisest of moves. But that's just also such a big conundrum for other drivers as well. Similarly for Daniel Ricciardo, who might end up going back in a similar fold with Haas. Now, I want to talk about both of them. And actually, let's also bring in Mick in this conversation. Because for Mick, there's only places to gain right now, but the options are limited. For Daniel Ricciardo and Alpine, it's like they've both ended up being the sole losers. And they all have to just kind of look for alternative options that aren't quite their first priority. So... Where do they go in this case? Because if they come back together, it'll kind of be like two divorcees starting to live with each other once again. Not really that they want to, but it's a marriage born out of necessity. So that that will be an uncomfortable situation, no? Perhaps the best for both of them? We're dealing with professionals here. This is a professional sport. Um, they, I'm sure Daniel Ricciardo will go where the best option takes him. And that may not even be within Formula One. You know, you could see Daniel Ricciardo racing at Indianapolis or racing at Le Mans. Um, he'd be hugely successful in either. Could you imagine the crowds in Australia if he went to the Australian Touring Car Championship? Uh, you know, that would be something else, seeing him on the mountain. Um, it, but I would say at this stage, let's wait and see. There are options out there, both in Formula One and outside F1. Uh, is Formula One finished with Daniel Ricciardo? I, in a way, I hope not. But it's pretty clear that Daniel is not comfortable with the car he's been driving at McLaren. It might be a course of source of mutual relief if uh, if Daniel finished the season and uh, went to somewhere else. And if he actually got paid twenty one million US dollars for that as well, that helps. That definitely helps for sure. But on the subject of Ricardo not being able to match up with his car, we've recently seen a lot of debate about teams. Uh, and we've been told on social media, at least, people saying, OK, the team should perhaps choose drivers that fit in with their car a little bit better. Now, how much of a factor is that drivers adapting to a particular car style? And do you reckon teams can actually identify that before they sign them on? Because if they could, that would be such a big boon in the driver market, right? Because they know exactly who they're targeting in that case. I think they do that already. And uh, they they certainly give drivers simulator time long before they uh, finalise a contract. You know, these teams, are, as you say, spending tens of millions of pounds on these drivers. They do the due diligence. So I have no doubt about that bit of it. Uh, of course, some of the challenges this year have been because we've moved back to a ground effect car. And some of the teams have responded, particularly Mercedes, better than others. Um, but equally, we you know, we'll see where it takes us. I... I you know, there is another scenario with Daniel Ricciardo, of course. It's the Kimi Raikkonen scenario. Do you remember in 2018 when Kimi Raikkonen stood down from... Was it 2008? I'm losing, I'm losing the plot. He stood down from uh, Ferrari uh, to, to make room for uh, um, a certain uh, Charles Leclerc in 2018. And Kimi then didn't race for a couple of years because he was being paid money by Ferrari not to race. So that, there could be that scenario as well. We don't know. Uh, you know, that is all done by lawyers, people in the commercial section of the team behind closed doors. But we'll get to see the end result when they get out on the racetrack. Just keep an eye on the colour of the crash helmet. Yep. And that year was 2009, at the end of 2009. 
<laughs> and Kimi, yeah. I wouldn't say he sat home. He just graduated to your and to NASCAR trucks. Again, that's the peak of motorsport, isn't it? We, we all know that it just is. But on the subject of Kimi, on the you subject know, of Kimi, them, any 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 nearly one-ton pickup truck that can do the best part of two hundred miles an hour, that's got to be fun to drive. They're actually more powerful than the NASCAR stock cars. And, and they're ridiculously crazy to manage. But that's not the only thing that Kimi drove because he went yeah. to rallies and there's this iconic image of Kimi Raikkonen standing atop of a slip rally car saying, yeah, man, it just happened. And, and that's the kind of stuff that we really love. But Kimi's been on the subject of a lot of crazy contract stories in Formula 1 that happened in the city season. Case in point, one, one that isn't quite 100% relevant but is really fun to bring out, his scenario with Lotus. Do, do you remember that? When he actually ended up performing so well that he bankrupted his own team. <laughs> well, I, I really won't comment on that one, but I do know that the thing with, with Kimmy is he may not be the great one for making speeches, but he you put him in a race car, you're going to get a 100% Kimmy Raikkonen drive. And that's what we all love about Kimmy. Uh, I did love it earlier this week. Uh, he posted an image on Facebook and there's a picture of him sitting in a NASCAR with just a one word caption being typically Kimmy, hashtag NASCAR. There's a hint. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, Kimi is just so Kimi. And I, I want to talk to you specifically about one thing you mentioned early in the episode. You said Michael Schumacher's story with Jordan. Now, that's caught my eye once again. Or, or caught my ear in a way because we're doing a podcast. But whatever, you get the point, right? The, the point is, that is one of the really fun stories that kind of manipulated, uh, that kind of... Uh, not manipulated, that's not the word I'm looking for, but manifested itself in the middle of a season. And that is, isn't that very similar to what we're seeing with Oscar Piastri, isn't it? But this is, of course, a situation where Piastri hasn't quite driven a race, but Michael in that case did. And for our oh, listeners, opinion, yeah, that, that, yeah. Was, that must be a crazy time. Well, that was Belgian Grand Prix, was it been 91? I can't remember, 90? Uh, I can't remember the specific date. Basically, though, the Jordan team had a problem. Uh, one of their drivers, Bertrand Gacho, was convicted of a driving offence, a criminal offence, and was banned from racing in Formula One. So that left a seat going for the Belgian Grand Prix. There was this very bright young guy called Michael Schumacher, who had been effortlessly quick in the GP2 and in, before that in Formula 3, a little bit like Oscar Piastri. Um, and Gary Anderson and Eddie Jordan at the Jordan F1 team brought him in for a test on a section, just a shortened section, the South Circuit at Silverstone. And within four laps, Michael was close to the track record. On the fifth lap, he went faster than the track record. And they were on the radio to him saying, Michael, slow down, you're overdoing it. And Michael said, I'm not trying yet. So they brought him and had a debrief. <laughs> And you know, Michael was utterly at home in the car. They they put him in the car for the Belgian Grand Prix qualifying. He's, I think he qualified sixth. Sadly, in those days, manual clutch. Uh, the car, he slipped the clutch a little bit too much at the start and burned the clutch. So he retired in the early stages of the lap. Eddie knew he'd found a star. Um, the bad news was that Flavio Briatore had jumped in and got offered him a contract with the Banneton F1 team. And uh, history, as they say, tells its own story. In 92 and 95, Michael was world champion for Benetton. And the interesting part of the contract was uh, that he signed a deal with Eddie to, uh, I think, do a race or, or, or to sign up for the team for 
a, a, a test or maybe a session, but not the session or something. Or the other. There's, there's some word in that actually got me really confused that Briatore actually I, I, I couldn't, Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't possibly comment on it because I can't afford the lawyers. Um, but I, my, my belief would be that being Eddie, Eddie wouldn't sign somebody up for a year that he didn't know. He'd have done it on a one-race contract. And Briatore got a sniff of it and jumped in and offered Michael a longer-term contract and probably a bit more money as well. So, because Eddie was never known for uh, being un- overly generous with his drivers. So, anyway, all's, all's fair in love, war and Formula One contract. Um, and, as I say, the end story is that Michael won his first two world championships with uh, with Benetton. Exactly, and crazy how it actually worked. Actually, he won two Belgian Grand Prix in 92 and 95 as well with the Benetton team. So, you know, um, it, that, that really does sort of say it all, really. Exactly. And, and I've just Googled and I found out that the wording was that Michael said that he will sign the agreement and the ambiguous element. No, he, he said he'll sign a agreement or a, a agreement in a way. But then, of course, the lawyers kind of use that to their advantage. But well, you have to remember that he had some of he had two of he was working alongside two of well three of the most astute contract makers and brokers in in formula one of the time there was willie weber his manager who is was and is a, a fearsome force uh eddie jordan who was and is a fearsome force um and flavio Briatori, who was and is a fearsome force so michael was surrounded by the aristocracy of formula one from the moment, moment he made his debut Exactly. A, a kind of a bit like Piastri, but raised to an extreme level. And I love the fact that these extreme stories can also be, not extreme stories, but these fun stories will also be shared on the live watch along that we're going to have starting from the Belgian GP. So, folks, if you haven't registered yet, check out the link in the description and it'll be myself, Steve Slater, of course, as you can listen to him right now on this episode and F1 Stats Guru that we're always going to have on that particular watch along. So, Join in, join us. There are going to be more of those stories and also live interactions for the Grand Prix. But I also want to talk about another fun story. Jensen Button had a similar saga where he was stuck between two teams, one that he wanted to drive for, but one that he was contracted to drive for in 2005. And that story has always confused me. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Because I suppose it was right in the middle of your, of your time working in Formula 1 as one of the top commentators over there. It was, and uh, I, I really hesitate to say too much about that one because I really don't know the detail of it. Um, the, you know, Jensen, um, basically, I, I'm, I'm in Honda, let me, get me out of here, uh, was, was one, uh, one element of it. But it all came good for Jensen in the end. He was, he was, he was left stuck at BAR stroke Honda. Um, and, uh, of course the team came in with a certain Ross Braun as the white knight became Braun GP. They, um, had the other Honda teams, uh, super, super Aguri, if I remember rightly had come up with this idea of a double diffuser, Ross Braun and his team took it to a new level with the first Braun GP car and Jensen Button dominated the, the world championship. So, uh, it has to be said that, uh, you know, it all came good for Jensen in the end, and he still remains one of the uh, one of the good guys of Formula One, um, and and a very good um, pit lane pundit uh, for, for for Sky Sports and uh, uh, ESPN etc. To this or Fox Sports to this day, um, the one claim to fame I have with Jensen Button is that when he was racing in Formula Three, 
in about 1996, I seem to recollect. I was actually living in Bozeman, spending a lot of time at Spa as a commentator for other races. And at the Euro Race Race Series, we introduced Jensen Button to, uh, to eating Bozeman waffles. Never had them before. <laughs> so Jensen and his dad sat in the paddock with us at a picnic table eating, eating uh, Liège waffles. And little did you know at that time that you would end up I mean, having waffles with the Formula One world champion so casually <laughs> and the way things worked out. And I suppose well, even... Funny, the waffles have had less effect on his stomach than on mine. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Crazy how Formula One drivers are so well-built physically. But on the subject of Jensen, I think even he didn't know at that time that this would end up being his uh, best mistake in a way. Because let's yes. be honest, it, it, it was sort of accidental that he ended up staying at BER because he really wanted to go to Williams, didn't he? I mean, he made a proper fuss about it, told the entire <laughs> paddock about it, all the media, all the interviews. I, I remember listening to so many uh, episodes on the radio as well about that. And that just didn't happen. Best mistake ever. But just what went wrong in that case? I, I still never quite realised. Um, I, I think Honda had a very good contract and Jensen eventually got persuaded that it was worth staying on because something good was coming around the corner. Um, you have to remember that, that was the year where the, the Honda car was so bad that I think it was at Monza, the race after Spa that year, uh, where Rubens Barrichello got hauled in for a technical infringement and was told that, do you realise the gravity of this infringement? You might be excluded from the race. And Rubens looked at the, scrut- uh, the um, stewards in the eye and said, actually, would you mind banning me for the rest of the season? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, they they were a pitiful team back in the day. But um, it was it's when it's when the it's when the pit lane pit crew manager has to say to the guys, "No, guys, the big wheels go on the back. You know something's gone a bit wrong." <laughs> exactly. But I wonder what's going to go wrong for Ferrari in Spa. That's the fun thing that we've got to discuss as well, because of course we're going to have a watch along next week for the Belgian Grand Prix. We're so, so excited to have you on. But just for a brief preview of Spa, I just want to know what you're looking forward to. Because personally for me, we, me and Kunal have been having a bit of a competition. Maybe try to just predict what sort of new dumb retirement or a dumb way to do the race will Ferrari come up with. Is that one of the things of you, on your list for Belgium? Well, the first thing on my list in Belgium is we're a thousand metres up in the mountains uh, above Liège on the German-Belgian border. Let's not have any rain like we had last year. I mean, Britain and Europe over the last two to three weeks have been suffering almost drought conditions, exceptionally high temperatures. And sadly, in some areas in France and Spain, have had uh, desperate forest fires. And, and we certainly don't want those to continue. But I do not want the cloud bursts that we had in the 2021 Belgian Grand Prix. And in fact, I hesitate to even call it a Grand Prix. Four laps behind a safety car and then call Max Verstappen the winner is not a Grand Prix in my book. Um, I, I'm still amazed at the cynicism that allowed that race to be run. But uh, so let's first of all say fair weather or the odd shower that will make things interesting. But let's not have the downpours that we had last year. Next thing after that is Ferrari. It's a, it's a track that can work for Ferrari. Um, 2018 Vettel won for them here. Charles Leclerc won in 2019. It probably plays to the strength of the Ferrari. Um, it's a track that you don't need huge amounts of downforce, but it, 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 it's got slow, medium and slow corners as well as the really long straights. And uh, it could be a track where Mercedes could recover their form as well. 
But Ferrari is it's just so frustrating because we know they've got a car that can win races. And it's almost as if the combination of reliability and strategy sometimes just they, they shoot themselves in the foot. And I really do. I mean, at the moment, they've demonstrated they've got a car and drivers that can win individual Grand Prix, but they yet don't have an infrastructure to go head to head with a Mercedes or a, um, or a Red Bull and fight for a world championship, which is a great pity because I think Max now, I wouldn't say he's home and dry, but it would have to be a disaster for Red Bull for Max Verstappen not to, uh, uh, not to be world champion this year. Exactly. And the interesting part is that Mattia Binotto says that no change in approach might be needed. Now, we'll watch how that plays out on our live watch-alongs on Insider, starting off with the Belgian Grand Prix. And once again, folks, you might be saying, yeah, you're hopping on about it too much. But we get to do a live watch-along with the legends, these later consistently for three or four times this year. So that, that's, that will definitely get me excited. And I hope it does make you excited as well. Because if it does, you can, of course, join in by checking out the link in our description and imagine, imagine watching the race live, hearing his opinions and his insights on the race, while, of course, understanding how the race strategy works out and taking part in polls and quizzes. It's just going to be a gala. So don't forget to join in over there. But folks, thank you for listening to this one. So thank you for joining on this particular episode. And we'll be back with a Belgian Grand Prix preview very, very soon. So thanks, guys. Bye-bye.